0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantel. And this week for our second Alternative to Women's Hour, we have Brenda. Hello. Hello. Uh, So, Brenda, uh, would you like to just say a little bit about what you do?
1: Um, I'm actually a counsellor for children who've experienced domestic abuse. So I work one-to-one with children. And um, I also am trying to do my research... (laughs) in actually children's experience of
0: safeguarding procedures here at Goldsmith. Cool. So you're a PhD student doing yes. research, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, first of all today, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the concept of intersectionality, which gets thrown around a lot um, around feminism. And a few weeks ago, I went to a talk um, by Kimberly Crenshaw, who came up with the term in 1989, Um, And she, in this talk, was giving a really, like, clear and quite basic um, definition of the term. I think it's important to remind ourselves of how she intended it to be used, um, because I think it is a really powerful frame for looking at the world. So she was talking about how um, in the US, uh, there was, you know civil rights movements which advocate the right of black people and feminist movements which advocate the rights of women but those two movements kind of failed to look at the specific position of black women so the example she gave um, was uh, an example of a court case where this black woman was working in a firm, in a factory, I think, where she was not being promoted and she was arguing that white women were being promoted and black men were being promoted, but she wasn't and she was arguing it was because she was both black and a woman, whereas the company was like, what are you complaining about? We are promoting women, we are promoting black people. And the court said that she couldn't claim discrimination on both counts because then she'd be having two bites of the apple. Uh, whereas like other people wouldn't be able to claim sexism and racism but the point is that those two forms of oppression were intersecting to create a particular oppression for black women and that's the case across America and I think you can argue um, in lots of other places as well including the UK so for example she was also saying that black women in the US uh, single women I think it was a Going to get the statistic wrong, maybe. But it was single women and sort of like middle-aged single women and men. And she was talking about um, their different earnings and or like the different amount of wealth they had. So white single men had $44,000. White single women had $40,000. Black single men had $100. And black single women had $5 on average wealth. And so she was saying, you know, there's been a lot of argument in the US that, you, and you know, you can see it here in Brexit as well. There's this very common analysis that white working class people have been left behind, like white men have been left behind. Identity politics is excluding white men, and that's why white men particularly voted for Trump. She was arguing, you know, black women vote in their droves for Clinton, they vote in their droves for Obama, and yet they are still the poorest group in America. So if anyone's been left behind, as black women. Black women should have been voting for Trump. If if that were the case, that people who feel left behind vote for Trump, should say, obviously, that analysis does not stand up. Mm-hmm. So the point is, you cannot have feminism without anti-racism, and you can't have anti-racism without feminism, because otherwise you always end up excluding black women and the particular oppressions they face as black women. Um, and obviously, you can apply this concept in other ways, looking at... Um, homophobia looking at um discrimination against disabled people you know you can apply it in all these different contexts but I think it's useful to think about the intersectional failures of both social movements and governments when we're looking at social issues uh so yeah that's my little summary of intersectionality that was great (laughs) I feel
2: like that should be like every introduction to intersectionality i mean like, that's, that's i have to cite
0: kimberly crenshaw yeah, here. Course, <laughs> that's basically like, what she said like,
2: that's brilliant because you get so many people popping up like oh i'm an intersectional feminist it's like did you know that intersectionality came out of looking at the experiences of black women yeah like just it's so important that. to have so that like, history because yeah.
0: i think often it's get used as a buzzword to be like oh, I'm not that kind of feminist. Yeah. And it's like, well, what kind of feminist are you saying you are? And, like, it's, I think, a case of, once again, and, like, Kimberly Crenshaw is a black woman, like, the work of black women and black people being totally erased Mm -hmm. uh, from social movements. Like, obviously, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think feminism definitely has a problem with blackness and I think that's why it's really important to think about where the time comes from Mm -hmm. because it does come out of those struggles um so yeah
2: definitely and Brenda's going to help us contextualize this with her experience with mothers and children who have been victims of domestic abuse and how they are later failed by government organisations? I think,
1: think, yes, recently we've had um,
2: a lot of media coverage.
1: When I say a lot, maybe a few articles, really, about how women who have experienced domestic abuse but may not have um, right to remain in the UK are not going and reporting this abuse and, and sometimes staying in abusive relationships because they don't want to be deported. and um, Or if they do leave, they have no access to funds to help them to keep safe in housing mm-hmm. situations or to finance things like food and clothing or look after their children. So they're finding themselves in dire straits because they have no funding because they've left an abusive relationship and have no access to any social support. And I think in that sense... People have started to to see how actually that just re-abuses women mm-hmm. and actually met, coerces them into staying into abuse in abusive relationships because actually they've got no support to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really important to see how different women access services or don't access services, and who's entitled to support as well. And there's a lot of coverage as well how generic. Um, kind of support for domestic abuse actually is failing a lot of families because actually sometimes we need more specific catered for Mm -hmm. um, services to meet the needs of individuals and their families.
0: So um, I'm kind of interested in the idea, what does generic uh, services involve? Because like from (laughs) what I know about the feminist movement and the women's movement in general in the UK is that there isn't a lot of domestic abuse support going round anyway
2: yes but we've
1: you 've also got to contextualize that in we've over the last ten years we 've had what we called austerity yeah and a lot of cuts to services now i 've worked quite a while in this field mm-hmm. and and at first, refugees were kind of like specialist services
0: so that's refugees for women for and women children and who and are children. escaping abusive yeah. relationships and
1: um, and then what happened, what I noticed was starting to happen was that these fundings were going to like housing associations who then took over some of the refuges. And so they, so, so you've got, and I won't name any particular yeah. housing association, but they were taking over these refuges and, and, and because, you know, they were the, the lower costing mm-hmm. service and providing the service for families. But what they failed to have was that knowledge about how to work and support families who have experienced domestic domestic abuse. So while they were providing the concrete building, they weren't actually supporting families on an emotional, psychological level. And so what we saw was happening was actually families were feeling less and less supported. And and actually, um, when when you survive domestic abuse and you're trying to recover... You don't just need the physical support. You need to feel psychologically, emotionally, financially safe. And that takes a lot of work from yourself, but also you need support around you. And, and then what we see happen is that when families struggle, the blame is put on the children, the blame is put on the mothers for not recovering fast enough, quick enough, um, effectively enough. But actually, the service... An injustice has been done to them. They haven't been able to access the appropriate service to help them recover. And I think, you know, we're seeing this whole pattern of the survivors of abuse
2: being re-victimised and being blamed for not surviving quick enough. Would you say that... um you've witnessed intersectional failures in that sense so are there particular women and children that you feel have been failed with because you described a sort of generic service and when i hear words like generic i think of like white normative institutions so not taking into consideration different needs Mm. and different backgrounds basically Mm. to put it to put it bluntly
1: and I think um some of like south Hole black sisters yeah. they would they would say that they've had cuts and, mm-hmm. and you know and and kind of like your Black women's organisations have
0: struggled to keep funding. On like a side note there, I saw this thing online the other day, which was saying that, um, I don't remember when the tampon tax campaign happened and George Osborne was like, oh, we can't stop taxing tampons because it's an EU thing. But he was like, but the money from the tax will go towards supporting women's Women's, charities. Actually, none of that money has gone to women's charities. It's gone to other charities which say, OK, we'll set up a specialist women's service. And this person was saying, like, the reason they're doing that is because women's charities tend to be incredibly critical of the government and particularly of yeah. this conservative yeah. austerity. Oh, so it's like yeah. they're too mouthy and they tend to be run entirely by women for women. Yeah. Um, and so there's even, like, misogyny and probably racism. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure the Black Sisters struggle more than other women's charities to get money. I don't know that for a fact, but... <laughs>
1: but um, I mean, the thing is, is that... I'll give you an example is that a child who's experienced domestic abuse in the home, that is not their whole identity. And so if you take a black male child, for instance, and um, this has come up in my work, where they may have experienced domestic abuse in their kind of early years and then mum and and the child have you know, they've left that situation and but what also they experience is other forms of abuse and injustices um, it could be to do with economic uh, injustices, it could be um, institutional where racism. institutional racism mm. where they 're housed as well so they 're facing all sorts of different kind of injustices and i 've had you know children referred to me who haven 't experienced domestic abuse and and the person who 's referring them thinks that 's the cause of this young person's distress but actually when i looked at all the kind of material and um, evidence it looks that actually these young boys and girls have been arrested and and you're talking about 13 year olds they've been arrested put in cells without any charges later on and this done you know stop and search
2: repeatedly how is that not affecting them and these are young people that have had an uh, in their early years, been abused yes, by people that were supposed to look after them. And yeah. then...
0: The state they, is reproducing then that. Then the state
2: reproduces it. Like, and, it's pretty and shocking. I think, I think it's really important
1: to see children in their whole context. Mm. And uh, domestic abuse is part of that, their history, but it's not all of who they are. And, and sometimes we fail to recognise the present injustices that they face and are trying to overcome and how that also can imp- have an impact on them and their mental health. Now, um, talking about, you know, different services for different women, uh, heartbreakingly, I've worked with women who have been referred to me and their children referred to me, and they have no recourse to public funds, and they're really worried about where they're going to
0: to, to live. Sorry, can I just ask you to clarify what no recourse to public funds means? So it means they
1: can't get any financial... Support from government.
0: Okay, but they can still, the children can access your services. Yes. But the mothers can't claim benefits and they They, can't get housing.
1: No, no, no. Sometimes that have prolonged their stay in abusive relationships because financially they can't survive out of it. Um, and, and, And can we just also put this into another context in the fact that often perpetrators use a woman's immigration status to keep control? So, so, so some women I've worked with have not been allowed by the perpetrator to actually apply for residency, for citizenship. Um, the perpetrator's kept control of that. So that
2: puts the women in a more vulnerable Yeah, because situation. they're scared of being deported because we have... such strict immigration rules even though people don't think And also
0: that puts the kids in a really difficult situation because if the kid was born here they might have residency and the mother might not so the mother could be deported and and the child could be left with the abusive parent
1: And sometimes what I've seen is that mums have been allowed to stay but it's tied up with their child been under 18 so once their child oh, reaches 18 oh or something then then their immigration status comes up for renewal again.
0: So basically what you're saying is immigration is violence against women like immigration laws are violence against women. Yeah.
1: It doesn't take into consideration um, women's experience yeah and also I think you know we all know the recent um, headline cases about detention in Yarlswood yeah and so
0: Yarlswood is a detention centre for yep women and children and there's I think it's
2: for women are there children in there? I think there are children in there yeah. as well. There's teenagers in there as well. Yeah. There,
0: I, think. I mean there's a lot of controversy around it because basically you're holding people prisoner.
2: Yeah.
1: For without without any
0: There's no charges, there's no, no nothing. Charge,
1: nothing without any end date as yeah. well. Yeah. And this
0: it? is pregnant women. This is like people who are like some of the most vulnerable people in the world.
1: So I think <laughs> I think you know what we also need to look at is how the state continues abuse
0: yeah,
1: I think, I think sometimes it, that's why it's difficult to recover from domestic abuse. It's not because sometimes of the domestic abuse itself, which can you know, have ongoing effects mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. women and children, but also the effects are made worse by the state violence towards them, by lack of funding for services.
2: I think this. Yeah, I think this really gets to the core of why I get, and I've always sort of got really frustrated with government. Like in all parties, like there's so few representatives from working class backgrounds. That sort of just understand different experiences of people, like lots of people, and it's not just yeah. people in work. It's not just people in working class backgrounds. But if you have economic economic pressures in your life, it means yeah. that there's more likely going to be other difficulties that arise, yeah. which you have less control over, yeah. and it's more difficult to escape. And I just some I often feel like there are so few people that are decision makers in our country that really yeah. understand what that's like, and I I don't think. I think it's experiencing hardship that is so linked to e- e- economic and material yeah. deprivation but is so it's important to consider. Way yeah, of
1: looking at things which you can do in when you're well-moneyed. Yeah, and connected. Yeah, and 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 it's like this rationality is kind of seen as. Superior. We know how we know
2: how people yeah. need to be treated. Yes, we know exactly. what they need. We definitely know what they need. It's like yeah. no, don't, mate. You like, know,
1: and and that's and 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 what it is is, is that it 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 divorces experience from emotions. Mm-hmm. And actually, when we're experiencing abuse, actually, it's, we're not just rationally experiencing abuse. Emotionally, we're experiencing mm. abuse, which then. Um, we bring that with us mm-hmm. and then making decisions is is, you know we make it with our emotions as well as our rational
0: and body. like if you think about it and you're literally being held captive by your abusive partner mm-hmm. who even if they don't control your finances which is pretty likely in these situations like the amount of control you can exert over someone in an abusive relationship is mm-hmm. huge and then they're being held captive by the state as well Yeah, like I don't, it's it's kind of, <laughs> you're right, it's like a total lack of empathy. It's like that kind of, well, you know, she's free to leave or whatever. But, God, yeah. like, without the money, without the status, without that security, Support. your freedom is incredibly limited. If you have nowhere else to go, if you're going to end up on the street, and, like, that is partly why there is such a crisis in homelessness mm-hmm. in lots mm-hmm. of places at the moment, which had been basically eradicated under new labour, is because people cannot afford to pay their rent. Yeah.
2: It's as simple as that.
0: And so yeah. if you're a woman with children and you're in an abusive relationship and you're like, my children are going to end up on the street, you can see why you'd make the decision to stay, to stay in an abusive relationship. It's like it's simply that you don't want to die on the street.
1: Yeah. I, think, I think also with children... I think, you know, we've moved from um, thinking children aren't affected by domestic abuse to the point where they are affected by domestic abuse. But actually, you know, now with the sociology of children, we've moved again to thinking actually they are affected, but they also have agency. Mm -hmm. And I think the tricky part comes um, we often link blame with agency, Mm. Do, do, do you mean? And that's something that we need to kind of. You mean
0: as in that are there at fault because they could have some, done something yes, and they didn't?
1: Yes, yes. And and we saw that quite clearly, you know, with all the um, coverage over um, the Rotherham scandal with yeah. um, children who were sexually abused and exploited, yeah. um, and and why some people are saying that the girls were ignored was because. They had agency, and so people thought, uh, you know, they were making their decisions. And but actually, they weren't. They were being exploited.
0: As in, people assumed the girls were more powerful than they were.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and it didn't. It didn't. They there was no intersectionality there. Looking at the fact that they were working class. Yeah, Yeah. like it's yeah. It's kind of it seems so
0: obvious. Yeah, Yeah. and then also the way it gets portrayed is, is. so racist yeah, as well Like it it's, really it's portrayed as like brown men preying on white working class girls it's like yeah no there were no brown girls there you know it's just like yeah. or it's portrayed as an element of their muslimness somehow yeah. that they are raping girls yeah. and you are like yeah because white men have never never done that no. but I
1: think that's something else that needs to be looked at as within the Asian community um, about, about girls and young women coming forward and why is it difficult for them to come forward about sexual abuse Mm. and um, and who's listening to them. Mm-hmm. And who's... You, you know, we need to do a lot of work on, on hearing children's voices yeah. and young people's voices. It's that they do have the voice, um, but who's listening?
0: Yeah, and, like, these and girls were telling people yeah. over and over again that it was happening. Yeah, but who, yeah. But who actually listens? Yeah. And then if they had the one woman who listened and then the government didn't want to listen to her. Yeah. You know, like, it's like yeah. a whole cycle yeah. of...
2: But you just don't, but like, it's really important to, that we do listen, I, I agree with you, Brenda, but just not allowing those situations to be racialized as racist, as racist, if you, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, as much as we need, we need intersectionality, we can't use, do you, do you know? As I in like say saying like, the
0: Asian community has a problem. Yeah,
2: because, <laughs> like, because, because there's, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, there's, it's,
0: is everyone's problem. Yeah. It's everyone's
2: problem. Yeah. And... The because, women, yeah. because, actually, as it professor, Aisha
1: Gill, who, who writes a lot about um, domestic abuse mm-hmm. within the South Asian mm-hmm. community, and she often writes about how we pick on things to kind of, in the media, mm-hmm. um, to kind of, like, have this story of, the, you know, white culture coming in to rescue Asian women. Yes. So yes. you need to be really Saving brown of that women narrative. from brown men. Yeah, we've yeah, got to be very careful about that narrative because it's actually, um, yeah. you know, misogyny is in every culture. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah,
1: and and it may take different forms and different mm-hmm. ways and different yeah. appearances, but it's in every culture. Mm-hmm.
0: But that's again, I think the rationalism thing is somehow like white people are more rational. And so they can see the abuse that's going on in other cultures. You know, there's that kind of, like, we have the analytical tools to understand that the Asian community has a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely... And it's a way of, like, shielding white people from the fact that actually all women are at risk of abuse. Yes. It doesn't matter what status you are, how much money you have, all women are at risk of abuse Mm -hmm. from men. How that abuse then affects your life is then to do with those kind of like societal think, categories and stuff. I think that's
1: a way or people have a way of creating a monster so yeah. they can project all their
0: absolutely fears
1: or things that they don't want to even look about themselves or about mm. their society or about their culture onto another. Yeah. And
0: like and Jimmy Savile.
1: Yeah, so so we create a big monster and that monster is the one who's perpetrating all the evil. Yeah. Um, so then we don't really... We feel that we're protected somehow. Mm-hmm. But yeah. actually, that's a fallacy. It's fraudulent. So yeah. I think it's actually sexual abuse. It happens in every single part of this country. Did you yep. know what I mean? Yeah. No. And, and everywhere. And also um, domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. And and actually, it's it's because it's so painful that sometimes... We prefer not to look at it mm-hmm. and to to close our eyes and pretend it's not there, or it's in someone else's culture, or it's you know a yeah. big monster in the corner he's he's doing it all, yeah, just to protect ourselves because it's it's scary,
0: yeah and it's Definitely. ugly, yeah, Shall we, Sh- yep, should we yeah should we move on yeah thanks so much for that, Brenda. so now I'm going to talk a little bit about um Something very personal to me, which is weight loss. So um, I think this is one of almost like the defining issues of like having a female body is that um, how fat or thin you are can define how you feel as a person and how other people perceive you. So... I'm not saying that men, you know, being fat or whatever is like, you know, men are discriminated against. Um, but the pressure on women is huge. And so I'd always, you know, had these things of like, oh, am I too fat? Like I was never like a super skinny teenager or whatever. Um, I left university and had like quite a serious mental breakdown. And then partly as a result of like the drugs I was taking and also the fact like I wasn't doing a lot. I put on four stone in three months. Which like I'm not very tall, I was <laughs> originally about like ten stones, so that's like an extra forty percent of my body weight um and I absolutely hated it and I hated how I looked, and I was really miserable about it and I in some ways like maybe like psychologically it was like I had very little like protection against the outside world, so like in a way, like having like a layer of fat was like my protection um But it just, like, I was so disgusted with myself. Um, Anyway, so after about a year, I decided to go to the gym. So I started working out loads. And, like, actually, it made me feel a lot better. But I was really, like, you know, I'm not going to get into this kind of... I'm obsessed with losing weight. I was just going to the gym. Literally, I would feel, like, absolute crap all the time. And then I'd go to the gym. And, like, just from the endorphins of it, I'd come out feeling like a human. But like the first time in like two years, I was like, I actually can feel normal. So I was kind of like addicted to that like <laughs> rush of like <laughs> normality. But then as I started feeling better, I started getting like, okay, well, wh- like I'd lost a stone by this point. I was like, okay, well, when am I going to lose the rest of the weight? And so this year I decided starting the 5-2 diet, which is when you eat normally most of the time. And then two days a week, you cut your calorie intake to 500 calories in a day, which is not very much like it is really not very much about a quarter of what you might normally eat. um and I've lost a lot of weight and the way I feel a lot better about myself because I feel like I look like what I think I look like so like when I look in the mirror I'm like yes I recognize you but also the reaction I get from other people it's just really interesting because lots of people are like oh my god you look amazing you look you look so great like what have you been doing you look incredible. And, like, I think maybe partly it's because I'm a lot happier, but mostly it's because I'm thinner. And I find it really strange because, you know, I'm, you know i like, a die-hard feminist and it feels really unfeminist to diet. it. And it's really unfeminist to, so like, I feel like I should be able to be, like, I'm going to take up all the space I want to take up. Like, you know, it's like yeah. the equivalent of spreading your legs on the tube. Like, I am here. Stop pushing me. Like, I'm in my space. I don't care mm-hmm. if... I am faster than you think I should be, but actually, like, in my head, I'm like, I am disgusting. I am disgusted with myself, and Mm. I would, like, think about that all the time. So, yeah, it's, like, this weird... It's, like, really... Like, it's a conflict that I think is in a lot of women. Um, So it's been really strange. And, like, you know, sometimes I really like it when people are like, oh, my God, you look great. And sometimes I'm like is none of your business and like who used to comment on my body and like people always feel like they can comment on women's bodies. And I think
1: they do comment yes. on women's
0: bodies and they <laughs> yes. do boys. Absolutely. Uh, I
1: mean men <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right. Right. Both, yeah. yeah. Uh, I,
1: I, I think why I kind of mis said that was because I, I think about my two children. I've got a girl and a boy and just maybe kind of like I'm just very aware that my girl is starting puberty you know on that journey and I'm just I just so want her to be um body confident Mm. and confident about who she is and um and I'm just very worried I think about the images and the messages that she can get from different
2: social media but but it's not just media media, it's
1: just about people Mm. other people other other parents have have they talk to their children and then their children talk to me, my children and it's you
0: know yeah and this is like not to slag like my mum off at all but my mum used to make a lot of comments about the way I looked because I think it's something that really affected her growing up yeah and so she was always worried that I'd be fat because yeah. she always felt fat she didn't yeah. want me to feel fat yeah. but then obviously that just perpetuates this like oh my god I'm disgusting you know like that kind of feeling like. Being a teenager, feeling really like ill at ease with yourself, feeling uncomfortable with the way people see you, and then I don't know. Like I think it's it's definitely, (laughs) you know, like growing into a woman is like a really painful experience. I
1: think. I I think women's relationship with their bodies are quite complicated mm. because there's a lot of
2: politics in it. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I was desperate, I'm just thinking about reminding me actually Saskia, I was desperate as a teenager to have really big boobs. Like, (laughs) from the age of about 12 to maybe 15, 16, so it's sort of it sort of yeah edged off a little bit but and it was it was in the same era where page three was really big Mm. and like we had like sort of katie price and like jodie marsh and it's so interesting how influenced i even was by those images like i would go to peacocks and try and find the biggest padded bra ever because i just wanted Uh. big boobs like Mm -hmm. it's so weird and then like i've solely i like. Because they're not that big, they're like a medium size, but like I was so desperate to have them. So I've got the opposite side, yeah.
1: That point. Yeah, uh, because I hit puberty early, yeah. So early,
0: so slow, yeah. and
1: I used to go, Please God, don't make me have big boobs, please, oh, wow. please, please. Because actually, and I have a weird relationship with my body in the sense that when I was about 10, I'd already hit five foot, and now. I'm not. I'm not much taller than five foot one. So most of my growing was done under eleven.
0: Yeah, so you can, me too. So you can
1: imagine me in the class. I had breasts. I had hips, and all the rest of the girls in my class were Look like kids. childlike.
2: Yeah,
1: and here was me in a young woman's body, and I was only ten. And so and being a woman
2: of color as well, or a child of color yeah. at that time, like yeah. looking old, like yes, there's there's exactly. there's racialized and, elements and there yeah. as well. And
1: also, I was taller than the boys in my class. Yeah. And so, so from then on, I had this image that I'm, I was this tall, bulky being. Yeah. And 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 even now, even though I'm short, I'm only just over five foot one. Yeah. If that, I have an image of me that is that I'm very tall. That's so interesting. Oh, that really that's interesting. so, so interesting. Really big because it's kind of ingrained on me that experience mm-hmm. of being ten in my class and being like the biggest, mm. bustiest
0: that's the thing. person in my class. I think like as a woman, you can feel humiliated just by having a woman's body. It's yeah, so no. like, and I think that's definitely true as a teenager. And talking about like the racialized thing, and also. Being in a school uniform, mm. like the amount of sexual attention I got that my friends who were white didn't get in London was extreme. Like, I couldn't walk down the street without some guy. And, like, I think, like, now of these instances where these guys were chatting me off and I did, just didn't really realise. Mm. And then how that affects the way I felt I had to behave in the yeah. street. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's. Because,
1: because I think that. You that's feel what under siege. With, with me, in the sense that. Um, you know, my parents were very strict, and so so it's about policing my behaviour, rather than actually, which makes me really mad now, actually st- thinking, actually, it's the men mm. that needs to need to change their behaviour. Yeah. We, actually, we we police our we, yeah. daughters when really we should be challenging <laughs> men. It's really
2: a lot, like, <laughs> we spoke about this at length on the last um, Alternative Women's Hour, like... This issue with our like our bodies and who they belong to, like I spoke a lot about how it's very difficult for me to be in a public place and people not either people men mm-hmm. um, not comment on my body, my looks, or try and hit on me basically. And this we're talking about how we feel in our bodies. Like I like I like my body. Like it's mm-hmm. something that I try and look after. I eat well and I go to the gym a lot. And I wear clothes that I like. I take pride in my appearance. But that doesn't mean I want people to comment on it. And it doesn't mean I want people to hit on me because of it. So, like, yeah. and more recently, even more so than when I was a teenager, I've been getting even more people comment on my appearance in public places, whether it's on the tube, on the bus, or just walking up my road. And I feel like there is a real racialized element to it as well, yeah. that I am something that's up for grabs, I'm something that's exotic yeah. or that's seen as something which is not quite white.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: and it's it's really, like, it's really traumatising at times and makes me want to, like, be... I want to look like this and I want to yes. be like this myself, but yes. I also don't want other people to look yeah. at me. Do you know, I don't, you know what difficult. it makes me think?
0: Like, I was listening to this radio, oh, like, podcast or something. No, I think it was a radio programme. I think it might have been Shortcuts, which is presented by Josie Long. And, um... There was this woman on it, she was a black uh, American woman, and she was talking about um, how she really valued the way she was able to create a private domestic space to look after her daughter because she was like black women in this country were never allowed a private domestic space, like under slavery, and then also like the way housing was, you yeah, know, distributed. Yeah. That actually, it felt like a radical act just having their own space and being yeah. able to be her daughter's caregiver, mm. and being able to like teach her daughter about the world and all this mm. stuff.
2: Wow! Yeah, it definitely is. It's like it is radical, you're not
0: yeah. allowed a private space. Yeah.
2: Oh my god, that is it. That is it in a nutshell Saskia. I ne- I feel like I've never been allowed a private space and particularly as I grew up in a monocultural town being predominantly white and then doing my undergrad in a predominantly white town as well, I feel like my body was always something that people could comment on. Mm. And always something people could men, I keep saying people, it is predominantly men, but I mean some, some women as well. Well I mean like, like one yeah. of my
0: like the defining experiences for me about like weight and stuff is my great aunt, every time she saw me used to go oh darling you've lost weight mm. even if I hadn't, even though it was yeah. exactly the same.
1: That's that supposed to be like a um, compliment
0: isn't it? But it wasn't that's the thing, is it sounds oh, like a compliment but actually she was being a bitch yeah. and like it's like a kind of Ah, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost like a form of social it's like her trying to control me. Yeah. It's really like I'm keeping like... an eye on you. I'm yeah. I'm evaluating you. Like yeah. don't think you can avoid my gaze because I I know what's happening with you.
2: It's really difficult because I definitely will say to women that are close to me, I'll say, you've lost weight, baby. You look you look really good. Yeah. But, like... And also when people say it, it to like, you. People say it to me, yeah. like, uh, should I be doing that? <laughs> but, like, at the same time, if I've had a month where I've been, like, training hard or, like, yeah. dieting quite a bit, I do quite like it when people say it to me, you you look like you've been working out you look good. Yeah. I don't really like it when men say it to me. But we've <laughs> spoken about this before.
0: We've spoken um, about this before as well, where it's, like... You don't know why someone's lost weight as well. Yeah. So like with you, maybe it is because you have you been tried. working out. Yeah. But I know there's times when I've lost loads of weight and like my clothes have been hanging off me. And it's because I've been so unhappy. An like Ill. and ill and like mm. depressed and haven't had an appetite. And you know, like and I look at photos of like, there's a particular time at university where I literally I just look gone. Mm-hmm. and, you know, I was never as thin. Like, I've never been, like, super skinny. I think my natural weight is, like, you know... I'm not thin, naturally, as a person, but um, I look at that, and I'm like, oh, I look awful, but from, like, a societal point of view, I was conforming to that idea that, like, oh, I've lost and weight, that's great. It, I think
1: that's it. It's about smaller being better. Yes, the yeah. The less room that women take, the better it is. Yeah. For society, it seems. Yeah. And that's why it's... There's a lot of pressure on women to remain small. Yeah. To remain slender. And that's why it is complex as feminists if we want to get healthy or we want to lose weight. But then the idea of being healthy...
0: Like, I don't know, there are a lot of fat feminists who, like, understandably get really angry at the idea that health is associated with thinness. And fat women are judged in a way that thin women... I would say we all count as thin women, like, are not... And people are disgusted by fat bodies in a way that like thin women escape. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: awful. Yeah. So I guess
0: what we're talking about is more like it is like a constant psychological battle to f- try and feel at home in your body and feel like you're looking after yourself.
1: Yeah, and it's like what I was saying earlier to you. It's about shame. Yeah. I think shame yeah. underlines yeah. it. Is that we're made to feel shame if we want to, you know, exercise mm-hmm. and and and. Lose weight, we're, we're, we're made to feel shame about wanting mm-hmm. because that seems shallow, yeah, yeah, it seems very, um, kind of like I know, vain, yeah, uh, but yet at the same time, we're shamed if we don't give a shit, yeah, and
0: I say
2: that
0: yeah, 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 we have to, we have to advise parents <laughs> to advise, on that podcast, don't we're worry. explicit, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, that, 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 um,
1: we don't care in the kind of like in the kind of commercial yeah. mainstream way about our looks yeah. like, we're shamed about that
0: yeah it's the same um, way as like women are shamed for spending too much money on their appearance and then also ashamed if they don't seem to care about their appearance you know like it's all that yeah, kind of stuff I think feminists are guilty of doing this to us absolutely. as well absolutely like because but then uh, yeah. like again it is also kind of On the one hand, it is a sort of radical act to say no to those kinds of things, because obviously there's a huge, like, capitalist element in, like, women earn less than men, and then they're encouraged to spend way more than men. And, you know, this is also an intersectional issue that, like, black women are expected to spend a lot more time and money on their appearance. And it's almost like a tax on your time so that you can't be productive doing other things or you can't enjoy doing other things because you have to be spending more money on your hair or on your nails yeah. or whatever. Then again, judging women for spending that time on it can be a very anti-feminist act because if that's what you need to do to feel like you're at home in the world...
2: Yeah, and I've been accused of having... Like, even from my friends that aren't feminists that women saying that like I'm a sort of walking double standard or like a yeah or I've also been called a champagne socialist
0: <laughs> oh I get called that
2: all the time I think I think the fact that I do care about yeah. what the way I the way I look for me for me yeah. is a radical feminist yes yeah, I
0: yeah. do I do feel. <laughs> yeah and like that's the thing like that can be a contradictory thing of course but that doesn't mean that it's not important. Yeah. Like, I think it's important to explore those things because yeah. it's never as simple. It's not black and white. It is no, not. And in,
1: <laughs> you know, what's influencing us yeah. to make us yeah. think that we're feeling better? Do, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah um, but but like you said, though, though, self-care is about self-preservation, isn't it? Yeah, it, absolutely. Is, like, resistance and ordinary.
0: Like, it's easier care. to take people being horrible to you about the way you look if you fundamentally feel okay with how you look yeah Yeah. you know like it's easier to kind of be like to push that away or like to have some kind of protective barrier if you're like well I know I look like how I want to look
2: yeah I have definitely in the last sort of year I had a last year last year I didn't really look after myself that much it didn't feel great but this year I've really made an effort for like weekly to make sure I'm just having my self-care whether that's like the gym time is my time like looking after my skin like just doing stuff for mm-hmm. me yeah. and honestly it really feels fe- like a fem- feminist yeah. act to me like the way I look after myself now I feel like this is the most I've looked after myself in my whole life and it feels to me like it is radical yeah, so yeah that's right yeah. I think yeah. so. and, I, and yeah. I think
1: you know there's a lot of talk um, within public health yeah um, within the medical field about you know obesity mm-hmm. but what we're not looking at really is the emotional side yes of why people are overeating. Yeah. And what's causing them to overeat. But also about um, how we're pressurized to, to buy certain food yeah. in a supermarket because they're cheaper.
0: Yeah. Like the capitalist element of it. It's just like yes. about shaming fat people. Yes. It's not yes. about being like yeah. what that, is fat it? Poor people. Yeah. 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 What is it about our structures yeah. that mean that people eat unhealthy food? Like Poorer people have always been more malnourished, yes. Mm-hmm. And now that maybe manifests itself as people being heavier, mm-hmm. or like you know, it has to do with work patterns or whatever, you know. But it's always it's always individualized as like you're a bad person because you're fat. You're
2: not looking after your kids properly. Yeah, like, you're a bad parent. One. Yeah,
0: you're mm-hmm. failing and society.
1: And it's not really understanding sometimes the emotional way we eat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: oh god definitely oh that's me we are stressed yeah Mm. and
1: sometimes um or don't you yeah yeah time and you know if you're busy working shifts how that also dysregulates.
2: this is what i mean this is again back to the Um, government thing like mm. people don't people if you haven't worked shift work if you had haven't lived on a very short small budget how can you understand what planning meals are like for those people. Like, yeah. Do you know what
0: I mean? And these are the people that are in charge. Or like charge. putting time into, like, you know, when they're like, oh, you know, people don't know how to cook, which firstly is not true. Yes. And secondly, so, um, it's like, if you tried living a life where you have very little money, you can't plan ahead because you don't know when your shifts are going to be. Who, like, is it, who,
2: who is it, um, living on a boot, living on a bootstrap? Oh,
0: Jack. Boots, Monroe. Jack Monroe. Yeah. Jack Monroe, yeah. She's so cool. Did you She's see amazing. she tweeted the other day being like, here are all the things you can buy from McDonald's that are under 600 calories. Cheap food, cheap fast food doesn't make you a bad person or doesn't have to be bad She's you. amazing. She's amazing. And like, I was like, that is such a huge state. Like, you know, yeah. because like, people always go like, oh, it's because people go to McDonald's. It's because people drink Coke. It's because people do this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, maybe it's because people are poor. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Basically,
1: I think there's a lot of stress in people's life, and especially if you're on a lower income, mm. actually, um, there's a lot of stress just to survive to meet your mm. kind of basic needs. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to affect how you eat, yeah, or what you drink, you know. And that's, I think, we're very judgmental. I think mm. from a position of privilege, we can judge people very harshly.
0: Yeah, definitely. And on that note. Chantal, what are you going to talk about?
2: Um, Okay, for our final section, I'm going to talk about um, early career researchers in higher education and then talk a little bit about the academic setting in general, I guess. Um, So this year we've had the um, UCU-USS strikes.
0: Yeah, do you want to explain a little bit Um, more?
2: So basically... Um, it's to do with lecturers, academics, people that belong to the UCU Teachers Union. have been going on strike. University
0: and Colleges Union. University yeah. and
2: Colleges Union. Because they are going to be cutting. Um, there's possibly going to be a cut to pensions, which means that each year people will be losing around £10,000 per year. Is that mm-hmm. right? In their, in their pension pot. And yeah. We did a um, podcast on this, if you want to have a look on our SoundCloud. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically, some of the language which came out during the strikes I know I sort of found uncomfortable at times but I didn't really have the words to articulate what I meant and it took me sort of a couple of months to think about the strike process and what it actually meant for certain people so I actually met a black woman um, who's an academic who didn't go on strike and I was like initially I was like oh god like how come like are you like What's your position on it? Sort of, I'd even been indoctrinated myself into thinking, you have to go on strike. And she was
0: like, well, I can't afford to go on strike. Mm. I literally cannot afford to go on strike. And, like, because people were striking, I think it was 14 days yeah. in total. So people lost, like, a month of pay. pay. Yeah.
2: yeah, it was a lot. And lots of people were taking out loans to cover yeah. this. Like, I know...
0: Well, if, like, they could. If, <laughs> if they
2: could. And this is the point. Like, this woman <laughs> couldn't and couldn't afford to. She's got yeah. a single mum, young family, yeah. and works in H.E., Higher and education, higher education. Sorry, <laughs> oh God, am I becoming an acronym right oh, now? I never thought I'd see. That. I'm definitely middle class now, aren't I? Um, and <laughs> alongside of this, having this conversation with this woman, I was starting to see more things, particularly on Twitter, from early career researchers about how precarious working conditions are damaging the career prospects for early career researchers. It means they haven't got um, stability in their jobs and contracts are only sort of yearly. And it's all, like, don't get me wrong, we've spoke about this a lot. Me and Saskia are very much on the side of people that are striking, I would say. Mm-hmm. However, I think what was ha- what is happening, and did you describe it as like a mist? Like people are sort of mystified by... No, no, but like, basically Yes, yes, that was me No, no, but it's like, so basically I feel like they're there's not enough emphasis on who gets to do PhDs and who gets to become an academic. Mm-hmm. Like, we talk about this in sociology. We write about it a lot. We write right. about class a lot. We like, re- but like, to what extent do we live that? And do we actually address our own complicity in this stuff? So my point is, if you're an early career researcher, the chances are you are white, you are middle class, and you are male or female. I think it's actually pretty, pretty split between yeah, white just, and as male, white males and ranks, women literally. yeah it's when you get up the ranks when it becomes disproportionate and it's like I know of so many working class MA students that weren't able to do PhDs because yeah. they didn't have the money to do so mm-hmm. and I know so many people that would love to carry on in higher education but just don't have the network support like even myself it's even own,
1: know how to apply know how to yeah. apply
2: like even myself like I have got very lucky to be here had Two things, one or two things, gone wrong in the last few years for me. I wouldn't have been here. Like, there's yeah. no way, there's no way without. And the things did my, go wrong. Yeah, things did go wrong. It like I'm self-funded as well, so yeah. like it's it's not easy.
0: And like I've said this before, that like out of you and Tisa and I, it's not a coincidence that I'm the only one who's got funding. Like, yeah, I. I'm upper middle class and I like, you know, have the perfect grades and you know what I mean? Like all those things I knew who to ask to get where I wanted to be. That's not to say it's been like a super easy journey, but this is the point is being an early career researcher and being in precarious work and not knowing when you're going to get employed. Those are things that are really stressful.
2: But it's still very privileged position. It's still a very privileged position. Very privileged position. <laughs> yeah. And that's the point. So when I'm when i I've, I've been seeing so much anger on Twitter, which I do understand, but I equally want people to really just take a step back and think, actually, it's it's really it's really great to be able to work in HE.
0: Yeah. Like it's such a privilege. Like
2: there are so many people that would kill
0: to be doing this. Or like kill to like get a degree in the first place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all these things. Like, yeah, I just think doing a PhD is a massive privilege.
1: It is, it is. And it's also about whose knowledge counts yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and we've got to realise that when we're doing research, we've got to be very careful about um, our participants and about stealing their knowledge. And who mm. we are. Mm. And, and Who then, we are as and
2: researchers. Then,
1: and we steal their knowledge and then, and then profit. we profit from it. And then we kind of think it's all our own work, but actually, no, it's, it's, it's others' lived
2: experiences that we are profiting from. Mm-hmm. And, and don't get me wrong, obviously there are a lot of, I'm going to be explicit, white academics that do work about people who are not from the same background as them, and they do it methodologically, ethically, like they they... Engage in participants in a very in a in a very good way, but ultimately they are able to do that research because they are from a particular background, mm-hmm. and I just really feel like there are sociologists that are talking a lot about this, but I feel like it's really important that we're explicit about how
0: this is what was really interesting about when I heard Kimberly Crenshaw talk at the so the talk she gave was the um plenary at the British Sociological Association the BSA annual conference and. I think one of the things that was really good about the talk is it gave people a platform to... And, like, the thing is, it's not being it's not being horrible and it's not bullying people to just ask when someone gave a paper, or well, have you thought about the way this applies to women or the way this applies to black people or the fact that, you know, you're doing research on a group of people and, you know, are they getting anything out of it? Like, are you just using, yeah. yes. <laughs> like eastern europeans or asians and being like i'm doing this great research and then you're getting a book out of it or you're getting a paper out of it and then you're getting a job out of it like what is your position in relation to like structures of privilege Yeah. yeah and like the fact that she gave that talk i think was really good because it might give a few sociologists pause to think, like, how am I contributing to the way structures of power exclude voices and exclude people?
2: And definitely, and more recently, even, like, seeing from early career researchers like people talking about the nuances involved in pre- precarious working and mm. the nuances involved in who gets to make it and who doesn't it's mm. like
0: no mate it's structural
2: yeah. <laughs> like it's literally structural and it's like the like, nuances involved
0: in who retweets you like the nuances involved in like who gets to make a big fuss about their res- their position yeah. like yeah. if brown women complain mm. the backlashes are much greater yeah. if a white guy does I'm not, you know, again, I'm not universalising. I'm sure lots of people have experienced real pain in institutions because of precarious work. But there are always other elements that mean that you got the job in the first place.
2: If you're, um, like, to even taking a, a, a feminist point of view here, if you're a white feminist and you're talking about precarious work conditions in a higher education or establishment, yeah. and you're talking about how shit it is, just imagine what it's like for black women. Yeah. Just, tr- just, just take sort of, that moment. Take that moment and think, what is that like for black women? And that is
0: not or like to the black it's women just... who are not there. Yeah.
2: But it's not only about <laughs> early career
1: researchers. No. Yeah. Um, you know the thing is, is I'm also thinking about cleaners.
0: Yeah.
1: And and um, where we, I say we, but university outsource their cleaning a lot. Mm-hmm. And 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 this is something I struggle with. I struggle with a bit because coming from a very very working class background, black working class background. And when you go to um, universities, often the cleaners are black.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I would say that's definitely true in London and big cities. Yeah. If you go to some university towns, they're working class people and they can be kind of of any colour, yeah. but that includes white working class people. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly is the case in London, and that is the case in almost all institutions in London. Mm. Security guards, front of house cleaners yeah, will, the same the will be people Library. of colour.
1: And, and sometimes I have seen where. Um, you have people who are intellectually debating, you know, about diversity, intersectionality, about equality and about human Theories rights. Theories of race and racism, yeah. yeah. But the way they treat the person who's cleaning the toilets or the person who's opening the door, the security guard, like total non-humans.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm really astounded.
0: And it's like, it's interesting to me that, you know, like a week after... The pension strikes amongst university uh, if lecturers and certain administrators. Um, there were strikes by cleaners in London universities, yes. and there were some lecturers and staff on those picket lines. But just the difference in who is on those picket lines,
1: and the and and who pays attention to that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And like when they were, was it outside SOAS or was it the London School of Economics where the the um, the cleaners were striking?
0: Uh, I thought it was UCL, but yeah, no, I'm sure there were a few picket and, lines. And, um,
1: you know, who's joining them on the picket line? Yeah. And who's actually listening to, to, to them mm-hmm. and who's
0: actually... Yeah, and, like, there was a lot of talk amongst academics. And it's true that the mainstream media totally ignored the lecturer strikes for, like, a good couple of weeks. Definitely. And then suddenly they were like, oh, this is actually quite a big deal. Maybe we should write about it with the cleaners. Were there any mainstream? Was there any mainstream reporting of it?
2: I don't know. Did the Guardian even cover it?
0: I mean, maybe, but it wasn't. Yeah. Ex- it's not exactly front page news like our oh, cleaners gone on strike. Yeah. As though what they do is not vital.
2: Yeah, yeah. when me, me, and Saskia were looking through the the Twitter images of, of the picket lines, it was like hashtag
0: Picket lines so white. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and we talked about it, it in our USS F, 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 F strikes episode, but yeah, it's worth repeating. It's, it is. It's just. So it's what? not the like there are there were people of color who was, were on strike there are people of color in some yeah. universities but the fact is most picket lines were almost exclusively white yeah and that includes sociology
2: yeah which is yeah this sh- shocking for me but um for, for for all of us but i think i just want there to be like i, am, I i'm so about like radical thinking and talking about like how shit working conditions are particularly for people that have just got their PhDs and how things have changed which are means it's even more exploitative now but I also want you to just remember how lucky you are to be there like it's as simple as that like and how lucky you are to be doing this research yeah
1: and and also I think I think we've also got to think about how people who are less fortunate less privileged than us are actually trying to survive in this this decade of austerity yeah and 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 have yeah to be
0: a, to
2: be doing a phd or to have just got a phd in the age of austerity you are more likely to get that if you're a white middle class like yeah
0: yeah
1: and and i think you know we've, we've, we've just got to think about the injustices that you know pervasive in society but also think who actually is getting hurt the most and often it's the people who's who are speaking up, but their voices are just not being heard. Mm. Yeah. Um, who are being hurt, but yet it's ignored. And I think, you know, despite our so-called uh, suffering, as, you know... Yeah. Early, I'm not an early career... You're PhD. Yeah. 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 You know, we are serving a society, a marginalised group, who are hurting
2: even more.
0: Yeah.
1: And actually, how can we highlight the injustices that they are experiencing?
2: You've been listening to Surviving Society Alternative to Women's Hour with Saskia, Chantelle, and our guest Brenda. We'll be back every few weeks with our usual podcast. So don't forget to subscribe and please do rate us.